Hello, everyone. My name is Caleb Hunt. I'm the pastor at Grifton United Methodist Church, and welcome to the End of Words podcast, the home of our weekly sermons. If you are in the eastern North Carolina area and would like to come visit us, we have weekly worship services at 11 a.m. in our sanctuary on McRae Street, and we would love to have a chance to meet you in person. In the meantime, though, we pray that this message might help you in your own life and in your own context to refocus on the story of Jesus. Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 36. This is on page 1601 in your Pew Bible. Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 36. Hear these words from the Gospel of Luke. But I tell to you who hear, Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who mistreat you. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone takes your cloak, do not stop him from taking your tunic. Give to everyone who asks you and anyone that takes what belongs to you, don't demand for it back. Do to others as you would have them do unto you. For if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to get anything back. And then your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. I have a very short warning for you before we begin the sermon today. Uh, this sermon has, has got a very long introduction, and it may not always be super clear where we're headed during this introduction. Uh, I just tell you this because I want to assure you that we are headed somewhere. I do have a destination in mind, and I think that it will eventually become clear why this is all relevant. I'm just asking for just a little bit more trust on the front end here, um, and I thank you all for that. Does anybody, so, does anybody here like disaster stories, fictional ones, of course, like, like in movies or books, like the, like the big asteroid, uh, super volcanoes, aliens even maybe fits in this category, although not quite. Um, I, I really, I really like these kind of stories, particularly the ones where the disaster happens at the very beginning or maybe like halfway through. And then the bulk of the story is about how, you know, the characters that are left uh, make it in this new world that the disaster has ushered in. Uh, because, you know, usually these characters, they go from living in a very modern and affluent sort of world, like the world that we live in, where we've got electricity in our houses, the internet, and, you know, we get our food from grocery stores. And, they go from living in this kind of world to living in a world that's closer to, to the Middle Ages um, or some other previous, more primitive and brutal time in human history. It's like they're transported throughout time to an earlier period in, human, in humankind's existence. And what, what I find interesting about this sort of setup 
is that the characters then are usually faced with very, very difficult moral and, and ethical questions, right? Like their sense of what is right and wrong has to be wrestled with and potentially change or adapt in order to fit the new circumstances. Like before the nuclear holocaust, you would never even think about trying to capture your neighbor's dog to eat it, right? That would just be a terrible, horrible thing to do. But if the grocery store is empty and the radiation poisoning has gotten to all of the crops, that, that could change some things. If before the asteroid hit, you were, you were just a pacifist, you would never even consider lifting up a hand against another human being. But now that human society has collapsed into all these like marauding tribes trying to monopolize the remaining resources by whatever means necessary, you're going to be at least a lot more tempted to start like looking around for, for a big stick or something. I think what I ultimately find interesting about these kind of stories is that they force us to reckon with the fact that in a lot of ways, our sense of morality, our, our sense of what is right and what is wrong, it's situational, it's contextual, it depends on where and when we are. Like if you're, we're living in 21st century America, we think about things in a certain way. If we were living in third century Rome, we would think about things in a different way. If you, if you like history, if you are a history buff, then you know what I'm talking about because we can see in the pages of human history, humanity's sense of morality of what is right and wrong develop as time progresses. You can sort of trace it. Uh, there's a philosopher named Thomas Hobbes who described the life of the ancient human being, what human life was like before civilization, before he had like police officers and hospitals and that kind of thing. He described it as nasty, brutish, and short. The strong and the powerful caveman slash hunter or whatever, they, they did whatever they wanted. It was rule by might. And uh, no one really thought twice about it. It was just the way that things were. There wasn't even really a framework or language for imagining something else. There was pretty much no way of starting the conversation. This doesn't seem like the right way to do things. We should do things differently. But then time progresses and we can see other certain moral and ethical frameworks start to develop. For instance, uh, there's an ancient law code called the Law Code of Hammurabi. And it's a set of precepts and, and statutes from almost 2,000 years before Christ. And it represents this attempt to put some kind of moral and legal framework to this chaotic, crazy existence. Um, to establish some concept of like, we're going to do things this way rather than this way. For instance, the Law Code of Hammurabi is one of the first places where we get the, the law of retributive justice, the rule an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And they meant this literally, by the way. If you were living under the Law Code of Hammurabi and you even accidentally damaged someone's eye, like your ox kicked them in the, he in the head or something, like you, were, you would have your own eye plucked out. And, you know, we hear that and we think that that's crazy. That doesn't make any sense. That's not right. But for the time, it represented some real moral progress. Because before the law code of Hammurabi, if your ox kicked out a nobleman's eye, he could just kill you or like burn down your whole village or do whatever he wanted because there was no limiting principle. There was nothing to say how that situation should be handled in a better and more productive way. We fast forward 1,500 years to only like 500 years before Jesus shows up. And historians see this developing sense of morality take a few more steps forward in a set of plays that are, they're called the Oristia. They're Greek plays. They're actually really important to the culture um, of the Roman society that Jesus grew up in. And in these plays, the eye for an eye philosophy, it's, it's sort of running amok and ruining everything. Members of this really crazy family keep killing one another in order to avenge a previous murder, right? So like, you killed my brother, so now I'm going to kill you. Hey, well, that was my dad. You killed my dad, so I'm, now I'm going to kill you. That was my uncle, so now you've got to go. It's just this never-ending revenge spiral. 
But at the end of the play, at the end of the play, the very first trial is held, where justice is dealt out not by means of just retributive anger and vengeance, but by a dispassionate third party. There's a judge who hears both sides and hands out a punishment that doesn't simply continue this cycle of, of revenge and bloodshed. It's moral progress. We have to realize that it's not, it's not really always appropriate to expect every previous time in history to have the exact same moral standards that we do. I think that's what those disaster stories and movies show us, that the characters have to adapt when they are essentially thrown into a previous era of moral and ethical development. Systems of justice and morality, they, they reflect their own culture, their own place in history. And the opinions that we have, our modern culture's opinions about what are right and wrong, they came about after thousands and thousands of years of, of, of incremental growth. That's the end of the introduction. Thank you for, for humoring me. Let's get into the, to the Bible passage for today. Our New Testament reading for this morning from chapter 6 of the Gospel of Luke. It contains some of Jesus' moral teachings from what is most often referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. In Luke, it's not on a mountain, it's on a plain. So we call it the Sermon on the Plain, but it's the same body of teachings. Early in his ministry, Jesus gathers a crowd and he gives us some of the most often quoted portions of the Bible. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And here's the thing. Here's the kind of crucial part. These moral teachings in the Gospel of Luke right here, they are still the most radical, the most fully developed, and the most stringent, ambitious set of moral teachings of all time. Of all time. And remember, Jesus said this over 2,000 years ago only 500 years after those Greek plays, the Oresteia. And to go from those Greek plays, they were just trying to get across the point, hey, maybe we shouldn't just all be murdering each other all the time, to Jesus saying, love your enemies. Pray for those that persecute you. That would be like some random Jewish peasant in the first century inventing a flying car while everybody else is still trying to put back together their busted chariots. It's a leap forward and the development of morality and ethics that is unprecedented. It doesn't even make historical sense. Of course, we believe that it was literally miraculous. To say that Jesus' teachings were ahead of their time, that's an embarrassing understatement. Their time hasn't even arrived yet. We today in 2022, even us Christians, we're not really ready to take them all that seriously, to reach for that level of morality that Jesus is trying to push us towards in Luke 6. Love your enemies do good to those who hate you. Give to everybody that begs from you. And whoever takes your stuff, don't even ask for your stuff back. That, that's, that's, kind of, that's kind of crazy. This morning here at Grifton, United Methodist Church, we read the most powerful and well-developed and ambitious moral philosophy, the teachings of what is right and wrong that has ever appeared in the history of humanity. And there are two major takeaways, I think, from this fact. Two things that we need to realize and we'll talk about them one after another. The first one is a fun one, I think. Like, it's, just, it's just kind of fun. The second one is not, maybe not as fun. It's at least extremely challenging. And um, yeah, it's a challenge for us. But we'll, we'll start with a fun one. It, it is, I, I just want you all to realize how amazing and awesome it is. It's something to be really proud of, I think, as people that confess Jesus as our Lord and Savior, as Christians, that our religious tradition, our faith that we confess contains the most ambitious and powerful and radical set of ethics and morality 
that has ever been devised in human history. No one has ever topped love your enemies and pray for those that persecute you. No one has ever been like, I mean, that's not bad, but come on, it's 2022. We can do better than that. Like how we think when we hear about an eye for an eye in the law code of Hammurabi. We think, sure, I guess that's fine for back then, but you know, we need to move further forward. That's not something that we think when we read love your enemies, even though it appeared 2,000 years ago. And it's not just the Sermon on the Mount. There are other radical, mind-blowing statements in the Bible that are so far ahead of their time that it is downright and literally miraculous. I talk about the Imago Dei quite a bit um, from behind this pulpit. The statement from Genesis 1 that all human beings are created and made in the image of God and therefore have ultimate and irrefutable worth. The fact that that biblical truth was written sometime around 1000 BCE is unbelievable. It's, it's a historical oddity, a mystery. In those days, when the, when the life of the average person was nasty, brutish, and short, it was, it was an accepted fact that some people, the king, the members of the strong and conquering nations, one particular gender, men, was, it was a known established fact that they were, uh, they were worth more. They were made of better stuff. They had more rights and privileges than, than anyone else. It was considered a feature of reality as obvious as the color of the sky and the ocean. And to claim at that time that a poor shepherd was worth just as much as the king of Assyria because both contained the image of the creator God It'd be like claiming that a fruit fly was equal to a lion. It's ridiculous. It's incomprehensible. It's nonsense. But there it is right there in our Bibles on page one. Let us create humanity, all of humanity, not just Babylonians or strong men. Let us create all of humanity in our image according to our likeness. It's like a statement that's been taken out of time and place. And then today we come to church and we hear Jesus speaking to us across the span of 2,000 years calling us to bless those who curse us and to pray for those that do us harm. The teachings available for us in the Bible are, they're incredible. And we might not be surprised. After all, we believe that the Bible is the word of God, but I don't think it hurts to take a step back every once in a while and marvel at what an amazing treasure it is that we have just sitting in front of the pew in front of us. In some, in some circles today, it's, it's fashionable, sort of, to point out all of the flaws in Christianity and in the history of the church and to suggest that Christianity is ultimately a destructive force that inevitably kind of corrupts the things that it touches. I don't know if y'all have run into the so-called new atheists. They're like Richard Dawkins and, and Sam Harris and they write books with titles like God is not great and, and the God delusion. They're sort of having a moment. Um, and first of all, we need to reckon with the fact that it is true that the church and that Christians have over and over and over again failed to live up to the moral values contained in the Bible and to live out the actual teachings of Jesus Christ. We, we need to confront that truth, to mourn our shortcomings, and to confess our sins. But it is also true that the teachings of Jesus and the scriptures contained in the Old and New Testaments have transformed the world in countless wonderful ways. The story of the good God who is reconciling the world to himself through his son, Jesus Christ. That story has inspired monasteries in the Middle Ages to care for people with leprosy who are literally thrown out of the village society for fear of infection. More closer to our time, it's inspired movements like abolitionism and the civil rights movement right here in America, pushing the world and this country to recognize the inherent dignity of all of God's people. The Imago Dei, the Sermon on the Mount, these are the kind of things that gave humankind the language, the categories with which to talk about things like rights, 
things like the inherent worth of human beings, things like justice, things like the beloved community. These sort of moral convictions, they're, they're not natural. They're not obvious. They're not, despite even what you may have heard, self-evident. They, they didn't come around until a certain Jewish carpenter started making very memorable speeches in first century Judea. It is an honor and it's a privilege to be a, far, to be a part of this faith tradition. So that's the first one. That's a fun one. Have y'all, I'm guessing you may be able to guess what the second takeaway is here, the challenging one, the difficult one that we have to confront after we've, you know, pat ourselves on the back a little bit. We have to try and live by this morality. This description of what is right and wrong that's so extreme, it doesn't seem to fit into any time or to any place. Do good to those that hate you. That almost sounds just as crazy whether or not you're living now in 21st century America or you're living in the Stone Age. We Christians who claim Jesus is our Lord and Savior have decided and have decided to let the Holy Scriptures govern our lives. We are tasked with actually living out the morality that's so over the top that it seems disconnected from history and culture. It doesn't even seem, it doesn't even seem to take into account the realities of human life. It's so impractical. Give to everyone that begs from you. When someone takes your stuff, don't even ask for it back. How does that, how does that even work? Well, I can, I, I can tell you right now, I, I don't have all the answers to those questions. I'm, I'm going to offer some thoughts, and I'm going to try to give you a way forward, a place to start, but I'll warn you beforehand, they, those answers and those thoughts will be inadequate and incomplete. And I'm also not going to try and soften uh, Jesus' teachings here or to give you just an, an easy way out or simple answers to answer Jesus' call here because it's, it's, your, it's your job, if you confess Jesus as Lord and Savior, to wrestle with passages like these, to meditate on them day and night, as we heard last week from Psalm 1, and to figure out how you can more fully embody these teachings in your own life. All I can do is try to clear a path. And so the rest of the time that we have together this week, we're going to focus on, on just the first thing that Jesus says to the crowd. But I say to you who are able to hear, love your enemies. If we can begin to wrap our minds around, around that statement, then the others, I think, might begin to fall into place a little bit. They might begin to make some sense. And I hope that I will be setting you up for success as you read and reread these sections from Luke 6 in the days and the weeks and the months and the years to come. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. One of the, one of the worst things, one of the most frustrating things about the English language is that we have only one word for love. One word for love. It's, it's, it's really a failing. It's, it's, it's just ridiculous in English that I use the same word to describe how I feel about my beloved wife and deep fried cheesecake. Like, I love my wife. I love deep fried cheesecake. Those are both legitimate English sentences, which just should not be the case. Obviously, the word for love means radically different things in those two sentences. But alas, it's the only word that we English speakers have got. Greek, the language from the Old Test, from the New Testament, excuse me, uh, that it was written in. It is very, several different words for love. You may have heard of some of them. Eros, for example, is the word for passionate love, for physical love and romantic love. It's the love of attraction. Philia. Philia is the word for the love shared between two close friends. It's brotherly love or sisterly love. The, the city of Philadelphia means the city of brotherly love. Does anybody happen to know the third term for love in the Greek? Agape. Yes, agape. Agape, agape is a powerful word. Uh, in some ways, it contains the entire story of the Bible within it, within just that word. And in order to define it, in some ways, you have to read the whole Bible, start in Genesis and end in Revelation, because agape is divine love. 
It is almost always used to refer to the love that God has towards his people, the love that God has for Israel, for the church, for you and for me. And think about what that means, to have a word that refers to that specifically. Agape refers to the kind of love that is always seeking the redemption and reconciliation of the other party, of the other person. Like God wooing Israel in the pages of the, New, of the Old Testament, begging Israel to remain on the right path. Agape is the kind of love that keeps pursuing the other person despite their unworthiness, despite the harm that they have done, like Jesus calling Peter to form his church even after he betrayed him and denied him three times just a few days earlier. Agape, of course, is the love that finds its fullest fulfillment on the cross and is the kind of love that declared victory over the entire universe with the empty tomb. Agape is divine love. And so what, which word do you think it is that is used in Luke 6 when Jesus says, love your enemies? It's, a, it's agape. Jesus is telling us to love our enemies in the same way that God loves us. In some ways, that clears things up, right? We don't always have to like our enemies. We don't always have to have warm, fuzzy feelings about them. I don't know, I hate to break this to you, but God doesn't always have warm, fuzzy feelings towards you. But of course, in another sense, this makes the call so much harder, right? Because I'll say it again, Jesus is telling us to love our enemies in the same way that God loves us. And so this week, as you undertake the uniquely Christian responsibility of wrestling with and meditating upon the most ambitious and wonderful and over-the-top moral teachings in the history of the world, let that be sort of your guiding light, your, your, your foundation, your starting point as you try to make sense of the rest of it, how, as, as you try to approach statements like, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those that do you harm. In what way does the Bible depict God and Jesus Christ loving his church and his people without regard for their current attitude or even their actions towards him? Forgive them, Father, for they do not know what they do, comes to mind. How will this change the way that you interact with people in your life? How will it change your attitude towards other groups of people in, the, in, in what's just an increasingly polarized and angry country and cultural setting that we live in, where so many different voices are trying to identify who the enemy is, not for the purpose of reconciliation, but in order to rile up anger and fear and vision. Divine love, in strong contrast, seeks the good and the restoration of the other person and of their relationship. Jesus says that we must love our enemies in the same way that God loves us. It's probably the most difficult homework assignment that I've ever given you all. You'll be wrestling with it, failing at it, and then trying it again for the rest of your lives. It's the unique privilege and burden of those who want to follow Jesus. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you for listening to another episode of the End of Words podcast brought to you by Grifton United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to our podcast, sharing the episode with a friend, or making plans to visit us on a Sunday morning at 11 a.m. in our sanctuary on McRae Street. We would love to have the opportunity to greet you in person. If you have any feedback, comments, or questions, you can email me at cpunt at nccumc.org. God bless.